I mean, I think uh, if you are in the hospital for that long time, I remember the first thing what went through my head when it happened again is like, I pay a thousand euros per month in rent in an apartment where I'm never going to go again. So I need hmm. to have somebody empty that. Wow. They, they have literally said amputation. They have said stuff like that. So at that moment, it's very, it's, it's crystal clear. You're not going to be racing your bike professionally again. It's showtime, everybody! Showtime! You've been living in a dream world, Neo. Yeah. This is the world as it exists today. Life moves pretty fast. You don't stop and look around yeah. once in a while. You could miss it. Listen, we talking about practice. Hey, Pete, on the dude's run. Donnie, you're out of your element. I see, you think this has nothing to do with you. Don't ever trash talk black Jesus. This is the Adventure Stash with Pace and McKelvin. Hello everyone, welcome back. Pretty special episode today. At long last, we're going to have my coach, Dennis Van Winden, on the show. He heads up the Orange Seal Cycling Academy and is the coach of Many standout athletes these days, um, plenty of gravel racers, some World Cup racers like Savile Blanc. Um, he has a really interesting background and uh, someone that I am very fortunate to call a close friend at this point, someone that I talk to pretty much on a daily basis. Uh, he's the reason we're over here in Girona, Spain, based for the winter. And we spend plenty of time talking about coaching and how he ended up with the Orange Seal Academy and, and coaching so many off-road athletes. Uh, but we spend most of our time talking about his life, his over a decade in the world tour on one of the biggest teams in present-day cycling, Lotto NL Yumbo at the time, now Yumbo Lisa Bike. He started on the Rabobank development team, had a, a very diverse career that also included a really unbelievable injury, big, big comeback that kind of in a roundabout way steered him toward what he's doing today. And it's uh, it's a great conversation. It's almost epic, I would say. It's pretty long. Um, and yet somehow it feels like we ran out of time and we'll need to do another one at some point. Luckily, we're here in Girona for quite a while and he's just right across the bridge, right across the pedestrian bridge. So I think it likely you'll be hearing his voice again. Hope you really enjoy this one, and if you do enjoy the episode and you enjoyed hearing from Dennis, do let us know. Let us know if you have follow-up questions. Like I said, we have some ideas of what we'd like to cover in a follow-up episode in the next month or two, um, and we always love suggestions from you listeners, so if you can think of anything, let us know. Until then, sit back and enjoy. Okay. Yeah, like I was thinking about it the other day, like... Are you recording this already? Yeah. Because maybe we'll put this in. No, like, great. I was thinking the other day, uh, like gravel racing is something pretty different than, than the road. Like how many races did we actually compete for a result without one of us having something having wrong? Absolute carnage race. <laughs> I so mean, true. starting already in the mid-south, like, <laughs> okay, maybe it's that's so already true. to start. Yeah. yeah, that's very true. I can't remember a race that we did together where one of us was not in damage control. Yeah. There's not, I, I don't think I could come up with one. Yeah. That's crazy. 
did you enjoy that phase those two two years of racing yeah gravel yeah i mean like i think i'm uh i'm notorious for enjoying riding a bike (laughs) (laughs) i mean i like right now i'm on the other page like if you compare to when i was a a rider now i'm a coach like i must have been like one of the worst types of riders to coach i think i was very coachable like i would really go into the details of the prescribed workout um but the rest days they would be like my normal days to doshi pakika or something what is it three hour road ride really yeah so you you just loved riding yeah and i still do all the way all the way through even towards the end of your career in the world tour riding yes also the suffering um i just i I don't do well with politics Mm. um so that uh that has always been a little bit difficult on me but uh and not knowing what next year will bring yeah that uh that got my cortisol (laughs) levels quite elevated yeah so you mean like the the challenges of uh a team environment where there's a bunch of different riders, a bunch of staff and a bunch of different things to balance like that, that got tiring. Well, tiring, I'm not sure, but it, it, it just, it, it takes a lot of energy like to, um, you know, you, you go into Samon training camp, you, everybody has dreams. Everybody knows what, what they're wanting to do next year. But in a team environment where you have 30 teammates and then also stagiaires coming in, you know, you need to fight for your place. Mm-hmm. So it's one thing to get there and then another thing to stay pro. And then you also need to inside that group of family, as they very often talk about, and friends. You have also competition, how you how you want to discuss it like yes or yes you have competition within inside the team and that is always difficult and when i look back right now like i retired from from the from from racing professionally and there is a very small amount of athletes who i still talk with Hmm. like as friends yeah even though when you're teammates like maybe it's it's a a weird example uh, example but like a rider who was racing for another team can be a complete jackass in your opinion um then he becomes your teammate and he becomes your best friend yeah. because he's actually like a great person yeah right and i think that is something we 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 have a lot of uh similarities as 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 personalities um because this is what we do. We need to be a little bit crazy to yeah. move everything aside. Yeah. I mean, you didn't get to the professional level by being friends with all the people you raced against. <laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah. Um, how much do you think that plays into that culture within a team? How much that plays into a team's overall success? Like, is it mostly just about the talent of the individual riders and the chemistry within the team is just sort of bonus? Or do you see... Cause I know you're very much a fan of the sport and you still have, I'm talking about the world tour right now. You have plenty of friends still racing at that level. Do you think those dynamics where there's inter-team competition and maybe different riders are feeling somewhat threatened for their survival for the next contract or whatever, 
does that make a big impact on how many races are won in your experience? Or is it a, is that a secondary thing that all teams and all riders are dealing with regardless of the team? Yeah, that's a, that's a pretty open question, but I think, um, the sport is definitely changing. Like when I turned professional in 2010, like you had to, as a young rider, you had to start at the bottom. It doesn't matter how good you are on training camp, but you have to start with getting bottles and, and, and do the easy tasks at the beginning. So you would never have the legs, even if you would be the biggest talent, mm. you would never have the legs to still pull out a good result. And right now with all that, that data, what is available, um, you know, if you, uh, get a, a KOM on whatever big climb and you are racing for a small team, you know, everybody sees it. So it's, it's easy to recognize talent. It's easy to recognize if somebody is capable of actually going for a result and then the team will decide how they will do that. And I think at the race, I don't think, especially at the big teams, I don't think that anybody is trying to get a result in themselves yeah. over their their job of the day and i think that is something otherwise you would never be in that position yeah yeah or as we've seen in a couple of recent years riders are let go really good riders thinking of like superman lopez and stuff maybe yeah <laughs> no for sure for sure but i mean i think definitely the team environment is, is something uh very very important you know it's not about what one person or what one set of legs can do it's uh you know always the the mind and the brain it's it's more important well of course it's important to have two very prepared legs for a certain race but if the if the the brain is not ready for that specific effort then the end matter. result will not be there um, okay, so let's kind of give some people, we're going to talk more about your world tour days and fun stories, but let's give people some background first. So you were here in Girona, you walked across the bridge from your apartment over to our apartment to do this podcast. We can pretty much see your apartment from ours. Um, Girona's small. You moved here in 2009 or 10? Yeah, I rented my first apartment here in uh, November 2009. So you've been here almost 15 years. Off and on. Yeah, I've not, like in the beginning, it was more like my, my training base. I was spending more time in the Netherlands than, than here. But when I was here, I was really on. Yeah. And uh, yeah. And so now I, I remember I tell people this story pretty frequently. When you picked us up from the airport last year, I asked how many pros live in Girona because you hear that it's sort of like the the bolder Colorado of of Europe, but it's way beyond that. You said there's over 400 pros, more or less, that live in Girona, counting, you know, continental team, mountain bike, everything. Triathlon now. Triathlon, yeah. even gravel racers. We saw Vakoc at the, Peter Vakoc at the coffee shop this morning. Um, when you moved here in late 2009, how many pros were here? Yeah, Christian van der Velde was living here, Levi Leipheimer, George Hinkepe, those were the guys. The Americans. Uh, yeah, huh. as far as I, I remember. Yeah. And uh, Koen de Korty was living on the coast. So that was, uh, yeah, what is that, 25 kilometers away from here. Mm -hmm. 
yeah, it was not crowded. Of course, like in the in the building where I was living, also uh, CJ Sutton, Chris Sutton, yeah. uh, racing for Sky back then, and Sam Bewley. Mm-hmm. They were living in the same building as uh, as I did at that time. And for the rest, yeah, like HCC Columbia, so like um, at that time also American license team, they had a lot of riders here. And already also Garmin Slipstream, they had their, uh, they had their office here. Hmm. So it was definitely uh, already like a, a good recognized place for for cycling. Yeah, but now it's just exploded. Yeah, and now it's uh, now it's really big. Yeah. Yeah. When did the trails start popping up? I think I mean in the beginning I was not. No, I mean, yeah. we were heavy riding road bikes. We yeah. would not even hit the gravel on those road bikes because yeah. we were so like, <laughs> you know, tunnel vision. Um, so I, w- I don't remember seeing many mountain bikers here. I really, w- I'm thinking that that is really something from the most recent years. But maybe I completely miss out on, on that part. I, yeah. I cannot really tell you. And now it's, I mean, Sam Gaze, Simon Andre, Simon's still here? I think no. he is back in Andorra right now. Okay. I mean, yeah, the number of mountain bikers here is crazy too. Yeah. Um, how many years did you have at the, at the highest level in the world tour? Um, I started in 2005 uh, with a small continental team. So from the juniors, I did everything in my mental capacity to get into uh, a good team yeah um like as junior i was i started cycling pretty late huh. i started with ice skating speed skating sp- speed skating yeah um but uh so i started with uh, with ice skating it was a very popular sport in the netherlands and then i start to ride the bike during summer training mm-hmm. and my friends they were racing and in the beginning my my mother is specifically she she did not really like that i was gonna go out racing bikes why um i think she she did not want me to be hurt mm-hmm. um so i started to race as first year cadet and as junior i, I really wanted to turn professional so i did not really party immediately as a junior you knew I did not know, but I really wanted to. Why did you, why do you think your motivation switched from speed skating to bikes? uh, Because uh, like, it's a very simple answer. It's, there was so much pressure because it's all in, it's time trial. Mm. And I build up so much pressure. I think I got disqualified so i don't know the exact i don't remember the exact number but i got so often disqualified because i just made two false starts oh really yeah, in speed skating I, yeah in speed wow. skating. i would just like you know it's a it's a time trial mm-hmm. and like between 40 seconds of the 500 meters uh-huh. at least that is what what was my pb i think it was 40 low at that time um and then i the the, the longest distance it was the 1500 meters so um that's such a short time frame mm-hmm. like what i was at that age also pretty good at but it was just i built up so much pressure and then i just interesting yeah so then when when you do cycling there is so many impulses from the outside and that is something what i was more easier 
or it was for me easier to anticipate on and I really enjoyed it. And then when I was a junior, I started to get pretty, pretty okay at it, but not good enough to really go to a continental team. Hmm. Um, at least I did not get any calls or invites. So I just start pick up the phone and start dialing and you can call Michel Cornelis, who is now a team director at Alpesin. You can call him and ask him to, uh, to fact check. But I literally think that I called him over a hundred times. <laughs> I mean, it was his fault because like he always told me, call me back on Wednesday, call me back on Friday. And like, you know, I don't forget that. If I want something, I do it. So I like, I just kept calling him and then very often his wife just answered. And right now I'm thinking he, he they were just sitting together and he's like, ah, oh, it's, it's this kid again. You answer the phone and say, I'm not at home. And then she answered like, Hey honey, how are you? Yeah, no, he's in the shower right now. Just call him back in five minutes. And then like five minutes, five minutes later, I called back. No, he's still not, uh, still not out of the shower. So like this happened, like for weeks and like literally in the end and i remember it like it was last week i called him and he said like you really want this huh and i was like absolutely it was like well you know you're pretty stubborn so i have to give you that so <laughs> if you're that motivated should we just do it and i was like for real and like you know he, i went to uh, to his house i signed the contract for one year wow. and uh and that was it and this was a continental team yeah it was a small continental team but we turned out to be winning everything that year no way like, yeah michelle has been uh an incredible you know motivator he is so uh is vocally very very present mm -hmm. and like uh he just made a great team and uh so what races were you doing? Was this like a bunch of kermesses and stuff? Or? Yeah, kermesses in Belgium. Like he used to be a professional cyclist himself. So he literally won almost every kermes race. He raced also professional for PDM, I believe. Okay. Together with, uh, with Jean-Paul van Poppel. So he was absolutely a good cyclist. He was also, uh, you know, he would not break. You huh. know, he was, uh, he, was, he was very tough. Mm -hmm. um, but he also went with me to my first conversation with Nico Verhoeven, what was at that point uh, the, the Rabobank development manager. Mm -hmm. So uh, I believe that he also called Nico, like I got, I got this rider, these are his uh, capabilities. You need, to, you need to take him on in the team. And he took me to Rabobank. He always said, I would never hold anybody back hmm. in, in growth. So he got me into Rabobank basically. In the what did you team. do in that first year on that continental team that Cause he went from, sounds like taking a chance on a kid that wouldn't stop calling him yeah. to be like, Hey, Rabobank, you need to yeah. take this. What happened in that one year between? Yeah. I mean, it went, actually, we went off pretty, we had a very nice team with a couple young riders, but also some more well-established older guys. And like already on training camp, I just like, I trained hard at that time, you know, I really trained hard because I was still in school mm -hmm. and like, I just trained through weather, rain, mm. um, like I, I trained very hard and then we had a team training camp and I remember it was in Limburg and I, like I dropped all the guys mm. and I think that is something what was a milestone for me, but also others recognize that I was very naive and very nice at that time. Um, but then we went to the first races and like, I got a couple times podiums. I even won two classics. It was, 
Hmm. It was, yeah, it was, we directly hit it off. Which races were these? Yeah, it, they were like in the Netherlands, we had some competitions going on. Um, and like we had, I had one teammate, he was actually leading the competition. So that was, uh, that was, that was at the team or um, like Vin Botman was this guy. He won the competition at the end of the year. Um, what do you mean by competition? So it's an, an, an overall classification ah, okay. over, I don't remember how many, yeah. how many races it was. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, I also raced Olympia Tour that year. That was not a great success, but we also raced uh, the under 23 uh, race in, in Italy. Uh, that was Giro della Toscana. And like we did very well there. Uh, that was the first time when I actually raced internationally. Mm. Then I was going that year. I went to Liège-Bastogne-Liège with the National Federation, the Tour of Flanders. So in like, U23s or? Under yeah. 23s, yeah, yeah. I was first year under 23 and the, uh, the Federation coach invited me then. And um, yeah, that was uh, how it all started to go uh, pretty quick. Yeah. yeah. So then Rabobank development. Yeah, Rabobank development team was... Uh, was at that time, I, it was absolutely the best development team in the world ever. Yeah. You know, like I think 90% of everybody turned professional who went to this team. Yeah. Um, and they were one of the, they were way ahead of their time with that, with having a world tour team and then having a development team, right? Yeah. I think, did BMC maybe have one? That was maybe later? I think it was later. But now yeah. it's almost, I mean, like 50 plus percent of, the teams i think now it's a requirement yeah 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 so anyway you developed there yeah it was like especially then i think right now if you're looking at like jumbo they have a development team that Mm -hmm. that is really dialed you know like we were we were of course we were a rabobank development team but we uh we had our own part of the team like we I at least never felt like we were already Rabobank. Of mm. course, we were a Rabobank development team, but I did not feel myself teammate as Eric Decker and Thomas Decker and Michael Bogart. You were hungry still. Oh, yeah. yeah. But I, like my real goal was to turn professional as soon as possible. Um, yeah. So And I was very extreme in everything at uh-huh. that time. Yeah. yeah. How long did you spend in the development te- development team? In the end, three years. Yeah, mm. we did get some offers uh, earlier on, um, but they were not well communicated uh, to protect the young riders. Hmm. So, like, it was not that uh, that that was directly communicated to me. That was more uh, like, okay, the decision was taken for me. Gotcha. Probably, I would have not agreed on that at that time because like i just wanted to become professional not for the money but just because that is what i wanted that is the only thing what i wanted everything had to move away for that yeah yeah Uh, yeah huh looking back on that phase is there anything that you would because i know now obviously you're coaching riders that are in that phase yeah like 17 to 21 22 whatever yeah you're coaching riders across the board but definitely have some young talents that are kind of in that phase. Do you look back on that time in your own career and give any advice 
to the, the, the writers you're coaching kind of based on your own career and looking back on how you handle things and your perspective and all that? Yeah, no, I mean, I think that is, uh, that is the, the best school I've had, like my own mistakes, because like I never really hit the brakes. I just wanted to do one thing and that was become professional. And like, that's a great mindset. That's a great goal. Um, but it's not the way how I did it at least is not sustainable. And that is something what you, what I try to recognize early on with, with basically everybody, how, how is their mindset? How dedicated are they to their goals? And like, for me, it was not sustainable for what I was doing. Like already, if you're looking at my bike position, like, and now we go to a different subject maybe, but like, I think my injury was for I forced that on myself or I laid it on myself by being so extreme. Like the aerodynamics back in 2000, uh, yeah, well, 2007 to 2000, well, at least for me to 2010 was like, okay, the lower you can be, the yeah. more aerodynamic you are. And, and I would just stretch and make sure that I could be more aerodynamic than the rest uh -huh. or like the lower I could hold my head compared to my teammates because they were, you know, national cha time trial champions, the, the faster I would, or, you know, the better I would be compared to the others. And, and I think, you know, I trained in that position many times or like constantly to just try to get an overhead of the rest. And I think that is very good drive. Only if you look at the outcome, it has set me back way more than it would have helped me. Yeah. At least on the long term. Yeah. Yeah. What were some other, other than a super extreme bike position, what are some other things that come to mind where you were just maybe going a little too full gas during that period? Well, I think, you know, what I said, I moved here in November, 2009. Like we had team training camp in, uh, in January, I would say mid January. Mm -hmm. And we always did testing day. And I was first year professional and I was faster up the hill than anybody else. I mean, if we were looking at the watts per kilogram, it was like, uh, yeah, I did pretty well out there. Yeah. So at that moment, also like the expectations for, uh, uh, to the mat, um, directly went up, but also because I pushed so hard, I also got pneumonia during tour de mat and like, I put myself in a big hole and like, I, at least I was not communicating good enough for maybe the rest to understand that. So I was not coached in a way how I try to right now, uh, yeah. help others. Yeah. How do you, this is probably a pretty challenging question, but how do you think you draw that line? How do you find that balance of being an athlete? That's a little bit crazy to just work crazy hard and find your full potential um and if you have a five hour ride and it's super cold and rainy for the last two you actually do five instead of four and a half how do you have that mentality but not take it that one step too far where you have in injuries illness you don't love it as much when you're only 23 years old you know just sort of run out of run out of gas because you've been going a thousand miles an hour every winter up until then how do you how do you find that balance do you think 
as a writer or as a coach? As a uh, as a writer, and then how are you as a coach? How are you helping writers find that balance? Well, as a writer, like if you're looking at me in that young age, I mean, we had a plan. I stick to that plan. That was rule number. That was my rule number one back then. And right now, and I think you know, you can answer that question yourself. Is like, I believe your no, your rule number one is you need to be a healthy person to be to be acting like you're a professional athlete. And if you're not healthy, then whatever training you're doing, there is no adaptation from it. Then if you put yourself uh, through uh, environmental circumstances, or you know, you have a little bit of knee pain or something what will take the sustainability or the consistency out of your out of your training, then you're doing it wrong. And I think that is a part of where everybody needs to be judging that for themselves. Because like I'm not everywhere. You know, I cannot be everywhere. So that is something like you need to do your homework. Okay. Ask yourself the question, is this gonna be good for me short term or long term? And if one answer is no, then you should not do it. Only thing is there's a very fine line because you can find every day you can find if you if you keep looking for it you can find a reason to not go do it right so and that is something like if you always decide not to do it then this sport is not made for you or you're not made for this sport yeah um so that's a very fine line you know you need to suffer um but for example if you you know you're in Girona on training camp and right now there's five hours on the plan. What, what the plan, it's good on paper, but in reality, it does not mean nothing. Absolutely nothing. It's not that you have one plan. What for you, it's, it's perfect. No, it has to do with the environment, the day of feeling, you know, just because it gets written down doesn't mean it's the only way. No. Yeah. And I think sometimes, uh, you know, do what I also, I mean, you have heard this many times, like, you know, the goal is way bigger than the numbers. The goal is way bigger than the plan. And I think, you know, when I was young professional, my number one rule was, this is a great plan. We stick to this plan and eventually you will surface. But yeah, that eventually may be a year ahead because if, you know, let's put it like this, if, you know, in, 2000 or you know you have one year you have the the best year you had two months of training preparation it was all good and you actually won you know you were very successful then you try to copy that next year so you just decide you do everything the same who gives you guarantee that it's going to work because like how is your body ready for it maybe you go through a tough time with the family or, you know, you have a breakup or whatever, you know, talking about the young kid, you know, there are so many influences, interferences, if a workout is going to have the, the benefit for you. And, and I think that is something what you try to recognize and, and plan together with the athlete. And I think that is, it, it's costing time, you know, like from the athlete side and also from, from the coach's side Yeah. and try together, try to recognize what, what is going to be good for for the rider in this case yeah one thing that's been interesting um since starting to work with you the last couple of years is because as a junior 
And certainly as a U23, I had the same mentality that you were describing. You just run through a brick wall no matter what. And in my later years, I've thought, I've had a feeling that that's probably not the way, but because I found success doing it that way as a junior in U23, I just assume keep doing it that way. Just run through a brick wall. If you're sick, train. Maybe don't do all the intervals, but you still do real training. If you have an injury, you know, do everything you can to where you feel like you're not setting the injury back, but right to the limit of that. And since we've been working together the last couple of years, one thing that you kind of introduced is that not only is that not the right way to do it for a bunch of reasons that you just mentioned, but also your body isn't in a position where it can even accept any adaptation. Like you're not, your body, if it's fighting illness, if you go through, if you, you grit your way through all of the intervals and you're mentally strong and you're hardcore about it, it doesn't even matter if you do all the intervals, you're not going to get better because your body is busy fighting an illness or whatever it is. Um, and that's been so freeing in a way to know that physiologically. Um, and that seems like, uh, maybe a little bit more of a, a recent development in the training science, would you say like that? Cause it used to be that the mentality was you just train through, but that's not really the way it is anymore. It sounds like, I mean, I, I, I want to hope, or like, I really hope that it's, it's going more that direction, but there is also some signal still coming from, from bigger teams that is like their way. Hmm. their way that's the highway and i think you know that is something what what i believe what hold me back during my career hmm. you know if if i would have had uh and maybe i just did not reach out enough i did not communicate enough but for me the communication is is compa- like in combination with with the vital response it's it's like golden you know without that i mean i can just plan a perfect week of training but on paper it does not mean that it's gonna make you be ready for this race and i think that is something like what 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 i truly believe is like and that is maybe also not working in the world tour right it's like because okay maybe that works for four or five riders in the team okay you know like this rider needs to be is the guy for the classic so he is gonna go there this is what he needs to do and for maybe he has one or two helps there or but like for the rider what i turned into what was just a domestic we would be able to go where he needs to be going to assist um you know the the way of uh decoding the race demands uh, how we used to say it right now is like you cannot plan that far ahead like so very often riders like me we get to hear we find out two weeks out like okay you go to terreno adratico you know like oh you know uh i was thinking that i was gonna do something else you know and sometimes that turns out to be great because the expectation level goes down and that suddenly like mentally there's a switch like oh wow how could i have been able to do that so sometimes that's very very good but if you're looking at a high performance so like you know you have sports and you high, have high performance sport or top sport or professional sports that is something completely different so and that is you're acting at a level and we are always aiming to to aim to train and race perform at that that highest level 
but it also means that you need to um, you need to implement way different tactics and trends of training yeah 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 i'd like to hear if you before we move on to more present day stuff i'd like to hear some highlights from your your years racing at the highest level so you were you're on rabobank for however long which turned into belkin yeah and then was blanco after that for a year it was blanco yeah and then yumbo yeah it was blanco it no it was so like when rabobank uh pulled out uh they still financed the team they just did not want to be the name sponsor of the team anymore yeah what was that about do you, do you know all the details of that? Well, I mean, it basically had to do with uh, with Michael Rasmussen and like... Oh, okay, uh, yeah, gotcha. Uh, so they, you know, they're a bank. They don't want to be associated with cheating. And yeah. and so in that part, it came awkwardly close. So they, they did not want to be in the Peloton anymore, but they respected the financial uh, deals what they have made. So then it turned into Blanco. What... Yeah, what is nothing was just the name of the of the team or of the business at that time. Yeah. Um, and then right before the tour, they found a sponsor, Belkin, Chad Popkin, like, yeah, from California. He had a, he had interest. So he basically signed an ongoing deal, but they already next year after the tour, they also stepped out. Because they had uh, yeah, some financial issues with the company. I think Alibaba came up and oh. started to sell the cables uh, way cheaper. And that is how they lost a lot of business. Um, or AliExpress, something like this. And then you have... Uh, um, then the supermarket, together with the Lotto. Oh, yeah. They started there was Lotto and El Yumbo at yeah. first, right? Yeah. 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 Sorry, one more thing before we move on, because I know people will be wondering and um, what is your perspective when you think back on like how close you were to the doping era, like how close you were to, to starting to be pro? Because, I mean, you missed it by like yeah, a very short time, I think a couple of years. Yeah. yeah. Does that do you ever think on that much or is it just sort of like a, since it oh, I'm thankful for it? Yeah. With, with with my mindset, I think what I have uh, have spoke out like uh, I'm happy that I never got uh, got the opportunity. Yeah, let's put it in that way. I mean, I know it's a very direct answer, but yeah, like, you've told with, me that before. Like based yeah. on your perspective, you're fearful that like 19 year old Dennis wouldn't have made the right decision if yeah. you'd had been faced with that, which yeah. I think is an incredibly honest answer. Yeah, I mean, it, it it is what it is. I think you know, I would have done anything to uh, to get uh, get the best. Yeah. And yeah, at that point, when you're 19, you're not uh, you're not like me right now, where you're like, oh, you know, it's not has not been worth it. So I'm very thankful that uh, I never got the opportunity. Yeah. I've also I like I've also said that multiple times, and I will always say this because I've never seen anything dodgy. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah. I've been very happy with it. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Um, do you talk to, because I guess these days there aren't really any riders. There are barely any riders who are still, I guess there really aren't. There aren't any current world tour guys who you'd be friends with uh, who would have caught the tail end of that. 
doping era. So you can't really be like, you know, how, how do they feel about the way the sport has changed? But within your conversations, cause I know you have lots of friends that are DSs and stuff, um, who maybe were racers during the darker days of the sport. Do you, have you had any conversations where people kind of reflect on what it's like to have seen the sport go through a big transition like that? Or does it just not really come up? I've never, after, after those years, I've never really asked that, but I remember one, one, one story, like I was in Vuelta Ciclista Leon as first year professional and I was with Grisha Nierman in the room. And, um, I mean, I can say this because like he confessed after his career, but, um, he said that, or so it was like this, he had like, he was coughing a lot, you know, he was also older. It was his, I believe it was his last or second last year. Um, I think it was 36 at that time. He, I, he had a problem with his lungs. He was coughing a lot and like we had a new team doctor who prescribed him some medication and he checked in with the head team doctor. He said, well, you can take that, but then you would test positive. So, um, you cannot take that. And then, you know, we were in the room together and like, he was pretty upset about that, you know, hmm. like, how is the, how can this happen? And then he, uh, or asked him like, it's okay. Like, you know, you're a professional for a long time. You know, you raised the tour back in those years. Like, did you ever did something? And his answer was pretty crystal clear. He said, I wish I did because now I'm 36. And right now when I retire, I need to start working hard to provide for my family. So I wish I did. Cause he would have made so much more money. Yeah, he, yeah. yeah. You know, when he was under 23, he was a very good cyclist, but you know, and in the end, you know, he, he confessed after because like the UCI, they had this, this time where they said, okay, if you did something bad, confess, and then you can start with a clean sheet. And you know, he did that. He went through a lot of shit then. Um, but for me, it's like, you know, I'm very happy because if I would be there, I would have done that too, for sure. Yeah. So for me, it's like, you know, right now that is way behind and um i honestly think that uh you know basically from from when i turned pro it was never an never an option for me yeah i think that is how it is for for almost everybody at least i hope so yeah i do want to touch on the um because we were talking about the that young mentality of just always more full gas making sacrifices that maybe affected your health um you didn't escape totally totally scot-free because you've had this uh, iliac artery issue from what you alluded to earlier with the bike position like the really aggressive bike position that you started using to yeah. find an edge um how did that manifest what uh what happened exactly yeah so my first year professional like you know what i said i had pneumonia in 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 february march and then like i just kept pushing and then like towards the end of the year i start to you know start to suffer more and more with with my right leg like just uh could not really push much more with one leg what age was this uh 20 or 21 oh wow super young yeah, yeah crazy 
so then in the next year you know it did not really get better and then like we went to the hospital and like uh mri scans they showed uh just like uh a cankle in my iliac artery so like you have the 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 aorta divides basically in two to left and right and when when i put my leg into when i bend my my knee to my towards my chest you know uh there becomes a kinkle what just uh reduces the blood flow so yeah that means that you know like a really sharp angle in your artery that almost closed it it was just like it it did not almost close it but it was definitely there and i also had like uh you know scar tissue on the inside um so then um yeah it's a simple procedure like they cut it out they stitch uh, a patch inside and like the the quality of like a vein can become an artery when it's attached to mm. to an artery so that that will take some time i don't know exactly how long but like because an artery is basically like a muscle so then it becomes more that muscular tissue um but with me uh during the surgery i got a bacterial infection what of course we did not really know um and after three weeks i said or two three weeks i started to develop like high fever and like that is also one of these things you know like I just could suffer it through, you know, I'm a little bit sick. I don't know what I have. Uh, I did not really have pain in this, in the affected area or like where I had surgery, not nothing more than before. So I did not really put a correlation between the surgery and being sick. Um, but then at one point I did go to the hospital and, uh, you know that was was a silly thing like they they said ah, we need a urine sample i said listen i have been with 40 plus degrees fever for the last three days i've not been drinking enough i'm dehydrated i'm not going to be able to produce urine they said well it's protocol we need it so i said okay then i go home <laughs> because it's like i felt terrible and um so i went back home and when i came home then the hospital called me they said yeah you need to you need to come back we just saw that you also had surgery i said oh, that's what i told you when i was there so i did not really want to go back because you know i felt absolute bad and then um then when i arrived there they um they just saw that uh, that the patch let go so like Whoa, i had a really? huge yeah i had a huge hematoma and like uh, so like you're a bit you were bleeding into the rest of your body because the yeah the it's basically like a little bit of plumbing they did yeah you, you had a leak yeah so like <laughs> blood leak yeah that was not so good so like within no time they had an entire team around my bed and they said you know we're gonna do surgery right now you know we're gonna cut you open and we're gonna do a bypass and i said listen guys nobody's gonna cut me open until the doctor who did the first surgery initially with me hmm. because you know this was not a life-threatening situation this was a surgery to be able to continue as a cyclist yeah well they got him on the phone and you know one nurse came back they said we are preparing an ambulance for transportation to the other hospital it's not our problem anymore so he took responsibility what i'm thankful for 
So I went back to that other hospital, it was like an hour and a half drive. Um, and when I arrived there, they uh, did the same. So they did an uh, emergency surgery where they cut out the infected part. They took a, a new venous patch. They stitched it back in. They put me for three weeks on uh, Fluxapen, what's a very strong antibiotic, directly in the in the arm. Were you in the hospital the whole time? Yeah, yeah. So I was there then, I think three weeks. In the hospital for three weeks. Yeah. What was your What was your mindset? During that time, because you're, we've talked about your mindset as an athlete when you were in that phase and not only, cause it's one thing to have an injury. You had an injury that was big enough that you had to have surgery. Yeah. Big interruption, annoying, blah, blah, blah. But now you're back at the hospital. Not only are you back at the hospital, you're at the hospital for three weeks, which is like a full off season. So what was going through your head then? Were you scared for your overall health? Or were you, I'm a pissed off 21 year old cyclist right now because I can't train? Well, I was really looking forward for the surgery, first of all. Like I was really looking forward to it because like, you know, this, this, I, I was still, remember my, my, one of my last races was bench in my bench, which is like basically a classic in Belgium. And, and I was fifth in this race. So I was pretty good. I mean, I remember that I was, I was just driving at that time suffering through the injury pain um, because I knew that it was going to be over in a month from now because then I was going to get surgery. Mm. So I was very excited about it all. I was able to put it at, at, I gave it a place mentally and I was just suffering through it. And then when, when I was back in the hospital for after the surgery, um, I was like, you know, it doesn't, doesn't matter. Like I will get through this, you know? Um, and I did get through that, you know, it was easy. You know, I felt pretty fine. I did not have much pain. And then I was released from the hospital, let's say December 22, right before Christmas. And I remember that the night before I was going to be released, I felt really bad. You know, I got some, some stitching pain and I was like, fuck, this is not so good. And then, um, I spoke with the doctor about it. He was like, well, you're just recovering. You're going to be fine. And like, uh, so I, I was home for Christmas. I did not do anything because I felt really bad. And then I remember that one of my teammates, Steph Clement came by, um, with his baby. And I remember that like when he arrived, I could see that he's scared. He was scared. Yeah. Yeah. He, he saw me and I was, I was looking pretty bad at that time. And I remember that, that he was like, dude, are you okay? I was like, ah, oh, no, I just have to get through this. And then, uh, like, I remember that he left and like, I could see that he was really, it did something to him the, the way how I looked. So then I checked my temperature because at that time I was always checking my temperature and I saw that my temperature was getting elevated. I was like fever. Huh? So I called the hospital that day, that night. And then, so wait, this is three weeks. So after three weeks, 
three so, weeks post the surgery. Yeah. So on December 22nd, they took the infusion, infusion out. And so this is after you went back in, spent three weeks in the hospital, yeah. had antibiotics, you went home, you still weren't well. I was not feeling well. Yeah. I noticed it on December 29th in, in the afternoon, evening. So I called the, door, the hospital and they said, okay, tomorrow morning, you still have an elevated temperature, you come in. And I remember that I woke up and I like, I had no sleep that night. I was just like in the box and from fever. I was just like, no, at that moment I have, I had a real bad pain. Like, and I remember that my brother had to go to university and I told my brother, I said, can you please bring me to the hospital? Because I'm like, I think I'm dying. And like, what kind of pain? Just like super intense pain. Like I remember that in the car, I remember that I was just like holding both hands on that. I don't know how do you call it on the roof, the handle. Yeah. Yeah. The roof handle. And like, I remember I was like, just crazy. Like, where were you hurting? At the side of the surgery? Yeah. But also my entire leg, like my leg was just like, so I like, I knew that was really bad at that time. Um, and it went really bad overnight. And then uh, I arrived in the hospital and like they did, uh, I think at that time they did an angiogram and they, uh, they saw that was not good. But at this moment, the doctors also like, we cannot do the same surgery again because they will not be helping. So like at this moment, they were talking with international hospitals, like how do we fix this? Because like, imagine I had this big hematoma inside. What well, is the perfect like fuel for for bacterias to be absolutely comfortable (laughs) so how do we how do we save this kid um and you know at this moment i remember that my hematocrit i think it was 26 oh my god yeah Yeah. which is like basically half what it should be yeah for people that don't know i mean it's yeah i mean i know that it does not mean anything yeah hematocrit when you're sick but um, like it's, my, it's crazy to know what it typically like clearly what you, what you mean is your body was just super out of whack yeah I, my HB so my homoglobin was 3.8 <laughs> I mean that is something like normally you would get directly blood but because I needed surgery and I was so bad they did not want to do me a blood transfusion because they would they would they would worry for me at that moment at least that is what I remember I mean I at that moment it's also becoming more vague because like I was just sleeping all day. Hmm. So they, in the end, what they did, they did one surgery to completely try to clean everything in my, around my stomach, right? Where I had that bleeding and they blew in a stand where, so to stop the bleeding. So at that moment they said, you know, this is just an emergency, uh, precaution to later analyze what we can do so they did that on december 29 they closed it then on december 30 i had another surgery to clean everything up and i remember man december 31 they woke me up at five minutes to 12 they said hey if you want to celebrate the new year (laughs) like you should wake up right now what yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) and like so i remember that i was really trying to stay awake and like (laughs) (laughs) so yeah that was a little bit the hospitalization in a nutshell so then i actually stayed for i 
I want to say seven weeks or something more in the hospital. So I was really Jeez. at home. Yeah. That is unbelievable. Yeah. So did you end up having a blood clot? Is that? Oh, that was last year. That was last year. That's yeah. a different, separate yeah. thing. I forgot about that. Yeah. Um, so ultimately, obviously you had this massive disruption in the yeah. middle of your steep upward trajectory. Yeah. You did get better. Well, I mean, then, so like what I said, they put that emergency stand in what actually they wanted to leave there. But if you just look at the diameter, it was 1.1 centimeter. So, uh, on the healthy side and the stand was fixed at five. So it's less than 50 five mils, five millimeters. Yeah. So there's less than half, half the blood flow in theory. Yeah. So that Do was, you think that, and is that still how it is? No. So I, I lived with that for two years uh-huh. and in the hospital where I had all these surgeries and all this stuff, they, of course, they did not want to do surgery on me ever again. Um, because <laughs> no, I mean, at that moment I was kind of healthy, right? Only if I would sit in an airplane for two hours, my, my leg would go asleep. Right. Um, then I did, um, two years after I had a surgery in France. Um, I had an agreement with, uh, with a, a professional or sorry, a professor in infection and vascular surgery. So he was actually like, uh, he was not do he was, I think doing like one day per month, he was doing surgeries. Um, because for the rest, he was all over the world giving lectures and stuff. Uh, so I was very fortunate. He, he wanted to help me. So I paid that myself and he did, uh, the surgery on me then uh, two years after. So it was two years infection free. Cause you were, is that, was that more of a performance oriented thing? Cause you felt yeah. like that leg wasn't getting as much blood. Yeah. Could you could tell the difference on the bike? Oh yeah. 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 What was it like professionally during that time? Those two years, were you fearful about being able to stay professional? Like what was the actual yeah, I'd, state of things? I completely changed everything, you know, everything in, in the first two years, then as professional, because I got surgery at the end of my second year, um, was all for one thing that was just, you know, being a killer. And after that, it turned into like being the best domestique. So being the best helper for, or tail boss or, or, you know, what, what, what the task would be. Cause I, you, you haven't been super, I mean, you're, you're a, a very humble person, so you haven't really talked about it that much, but when you were like in those early years, like you were, um, basically developing into a race leader, like you were winning some big races and the, in theory, the trajectory was that you were not going to be a domestique. Like people are going to be working for you. You had to completely reframe that. What was, what was that like? Did you even like, were you excited to stay professional or did it really take you down a notch mentally and, and affect your perspective across the board about even doing it professionally? I mean, I think uh, if you are in the hospital for that long time and I mean, I remember the first thing what went through my head when it happened again is like, I pay 
a thousand euros per month in rent in an apartment where I'm never going to go again. So I need hmm. to have somebody empty that. Wow. I mean, I, at that moment, I was sure that like when they were talking about, I mean, you know, they, they have literally said amputation, they have said stuff like that. So at that moment, it's very, it's, it's crystal clear. You're not going to be racing your bike professionally again. You know, when, when this happened for the first time, they said, Dennis, put cycling out of your head hmm. because it's going to take you months to learn how to walk again. So if they say stuff like that, um, I remember, you know, me talking with teammates and that we said like, ah, you know, now they're really going to put a big tube in and like, I would be unstoppable. But you know, that, <laughs> that, that, that is what you hope. And you always, you know, we always hope that we, it really helps us. It benefits us. Yeah. You're like, this is going to be an advantage. <laughs> yeah. But it's, um, you know, I mean, I definitely suffered that much during all this, this hospitalization and stuff that, uh, um, I def definitely think it benefited me of, of some way, but, um, not, not in any, any good way. So it sounds like you were just grateful to be back at the level, at a professional level. Yeah. And I think at that, you know, the way how I remember you know, I was a teammate of Theo Boss. I used to live with him here also for a year. You know, we were, it was like always, you know, a getaway. You know, we were going to a race to go have fun. I remember that we went to, you know, all these races. It was always fun. You know, we were trying to, at that point, we were like advanced with checking on Google Maps, how we were going to cut off the peloton. We're doing the lead outs, you know, like <laughs> we were very excited about stuff like this. Um, right now with Velo Viewer, you can not do that anymore. But, you know, we, we were doing all this cool stuff. What I thought was like very nice to try to be better or smarter, outsmart somebody else. Um, I mean, you know, we taped our helmets at that time. Like, you know. <laughs> like taped the vents closed before era helmets, yeah, you mean? Yeah, yeah. like yeah. stuff like that, uh, you know. <laughs> it, it was super fun. Um, yeah, so... We, we always, like, we had fun. And I think that was always something that I really enjoyed. So you found yourself able to transition into a new role and actually enjoy it. Yeah, yeah, for sure, De definitely. Already, like, you know, from the first day when I was allowed to ride the bike again, when I was actually still with... So the first ride, what I did, I had a pick line at that moment. Uh, so... I did the first ride when I was still on antibiotics. How did you uh, ride with a pick line? Ah, just, like I had it uh, up here in my, like, uh, under my, my bicep. Yeah. Um, and you, is that something that you can like, un so a pick line is when you're getting intravenous antibiotics. That's when you have a really, really gnarly infection is my understanding. So could you disconnect it and then you just like tuck the tube into your jersey pocket or how did that work? Yeah, I think it's, uh. I mean, I think you call it intra-arterial because okay. it's like a line what do goes through the artery to ride, right, right above the heart. Fuck. So you should not ride too hard with it, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, I, you know, I've not been riding for six months. Oh so, I mean, it was uh. medically clear that I could do that. Um, 
at least that's the way how I understood it, you know? Uh, oh my God. No, so I just wrote uh, very easy. Um, so yeah, so like, uh, yeah, that was not uh, not my proudest moment. I mean, I was very happy with that. I mean, I have it documented, like I have a video of it, but yeah. Yeah, so I wrote with a, uh, like with a, it, it was like, a because it's something. Yeah, it's on um, pressure. Okay. So yeah. it's a balloon yeah. in a hard cage and I had that in my pocket. Yeah. How long did it take you to feel like you could be in a professional level race again after six months off? Yeah, the first race I did not finish. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I was not even in the race. Yeah. What so, was what was that? Yeah, this like was mentally. In, yeah, it was in in Germany, and it was also super bad weather. And uh, yeah, I remember that I did not really. My my parents came, or my my dad came to watch together with my uh, with my aunt and uncle, and uh, yeah, I remember that was uh, not even disappointed because I, it was like I was very excited to be there. We were having a, a fun team, but at that time it was our realization from well, you know, let's try to make the best out of it because like this I don't deserve another year like this. They did give me another year, so after that year. Um, Why do you think they stuck with you, the team? I don't know. Maybe I was just a nice kid. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, I think uh, they thought that uh, I maybe deserved another, another chance. year. Uh, well, I mean, another chance. It was not going to get better. I think they knew that, but uh, I don't know. And then I'm, but you were on the team for how many years after that? Like ten years almost? No, uh, eight. They they fired me after that year, two thousand fourteen. They oh, that was twenty fourteen. After, after two thousand fourteen, so two thousand thirteen, oh, okay. I had uh, like I almost did not race. Two thousand fourteen, they gave me another opportunity. Then it became Team Lotto and El Yumbo. Yeah, and then they. Uh, they thanked me for uh, like I was not gonna stay with the team. What okay. what I was fine with. Yeah, I did not want to stop. So then I signed a contract with uh, Team Azerbaijan. Ba Azerbaijan. Yeah, I didn't even know that was a team. Well, they had a, they had a continental team at that time, okay. and they were very ambitious. They wanted to go to Olympics. So yeah, they had. Uh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Huh. So but. I raced there for two races because I was training here with Robert mm -hmm. and Robert was coming back from one of his injuries, Robert Geesink. Yeah. Um, and I could actually hurt him at that time hmm. because like I did the surgery during that winter, what team NL Jumbo, sorry, I should, I, I, I forgot to mention an important part. So like, Two years after that infection, after all that surgeries and stuff, I had surgery and they cut the entire part out. Hmm. And right now I have a bionic craft. So like that basic, basically means I have the the T-junction of the iliaca and the communis. For me, it's just a piece of hardware. Um, and that surgery helped me. Right now, I would say I definitely oversold that. Uh, to basically everybody um, because it's I'm confessing here <laughs> um, 
it has never been pain-free. I also think it has to do with a lot of nerve damage from that lack mm. of blood. Mm-hmm. Um, like, there's not one day that they don't have pain in the leg. Okay, wow. so, I mean, that that is ma- mainly because of uh, nerve damage um, after all the surgeries and also the lack of blood flow. Um, but, yeah, then I got the a new T-junction, what got better, a little bit. And at least I was performing better. I was, it was easier to get more wor- workload in. Um, recovery always struggled with one leg, you know, because there's always a lack of blood flow. Um, uh, what I did not always respect as much, but then I was training with Robert and I was frustrated about some things with Team Azerbaijan. And I was very fortunate that one rider from Jumbo after training camp said, guys, I retire. So they had an opening. No way. And I believe Robert did, uh, did quite some good words about me to Richard Plugge. And I remember I was at the bike shop, you know, getting, getting something done on my bike. And he called me and he said like, so what does it take to get you back in the team? I was like, nothing, I come. <laughs> so <laughs> so um, I came back. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. So then the, the deal was like, I was maybe going to the Giro, but because like I was racing in a continental team, I was not in the, my bullout passport was still valid, but they did not test me in mm-hmm. the last whatever months. So then I, just could not make it to, to the Giro at that time. Um, but I went to Tour of California instead. So yeah. it was, uh, it was a nice comeback. What was the, what was the last Grand Tour you did? I did in 2015. I raced with, uh, with Lotto Jumbo. The Vuelta? The Vuelta. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. Pretty amazing that you, they hired you back to the team. Yeah. Yeah. Um, over the years, you've given me some fun little stories of highlights and, I mean, fun little stuff like winning the battle for position into the Arnberg Forest one year. Hmm. Like, that's really cool. Yeah. Um, is there is there a story that you think people would enjoy that you that you like to share just from uh, those years before we kind of transition into present day and what you're up to the last few years? Uh... I know you have uh, some funny stories from like racing in China and stuff like that. We can talk about that or something totally different. Yeah, I mean, like China has always been fun. You know, like there's uh, the, the stress levels definitely is is a lot lower there because it's like uh, it's kind of an expedition to already get there, and then China is so completely different. Mm-hmm. So yeah, one year we did. Uh, tour Beijing to start with and like of course we were also doing sightseeing but this was also a serious race and then because we were sponsored by Belkin at that time and they were manufacturing all their stuff in China so they they really wanted us to be representing the brand in a race like it was called tour of Hainan and Hainan if you google it it literally said the Hawaii of Asia (laughs) so we were like yeah we go on paid holidays and like we were going with soigneurs with mechanics and 
like basically they sold it to us like guys we go there but we will not do massage you clean your own bikes basically no nah, that was not but like <laughs> Almost. We, we, were, we were just gonna go and have beers with the stuff and stuff and just like end of the year yeah it was yeah. it was like they basically sold it to us like that because it was like after the season it was like the last two weeks of october or something oh wow, okay yeah. yeah um so like i remember they sent us some kind of brochure where it literally said the hawaii of asia and we were like sold you know <laughs> we go and you know we were flying business class so we were having fun and then uh we arrived there and it was not really the hawaii of asia <laughs> At least the first hotel, so we're not. Um, so we were making the best out of it. We, you know, we went party during the race, or you know, also during the race, but also before. <laughs> but I remember that uh, we arrived there and we were not too stoked. So we were partying a little bit, and then the next morning, one of my teammates said, "Hey guys, did you guys see the road book?" And we were like no <laughs> he is like dude we can become rich here like what like they had a huge price purse <laughs> so suddenly like you know all our dutch minds were like we can we can make some good money here go so, on vacation and give yeah <laughs> so we were having a good time but at the same time we were like you know we can make some good money so we were there for five days or six days before the race and um then we just tried to win everything <laughs> like from mountain jersey to stages to everything and uh we were pretty successful we had a hundred percent succeed rate in the stage wins oh wow that's yeah, pretty so, good yeah and also we won the gc it's like yumbo today <laughs> last yeah, year yeah yeah true <laughs> yeah and then uh yeah, we got a plastic bag with dollars and cash and that was a pretty heavy bag how, mu how much uh, I, I like. I believe it was one hundred thirty-three thousand dollars. Just cash. in cash in a plastic bag. In a plastic bag. <laughs> yeah, I remember that uh, pretty well. Yeah, that's legendary. We cleaned up pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> that's so funny. All right. Um, how are you doing? When do you need to be out of here? I have time. You're good. Okay. Yeah. Um. So you eventually moved over to was it israel premier tech at the time or israel what was it was called cycling academy when i moved there it was what cycling academy oh israel cycling academy that's right yeah yeah well yeah at the beginning it was called cycling academy i believe okay. and then uh -huh. it it turned into israel cycling academy yeah gotcha and you were there for th three years two yeah so that, that so that was it yeah i i was really happy to go there um because I like, of course, I, what I what I just mentioned is like I was not being able to perform at the level yeah. um, where where you know you needed to be performing, and so I went uh, I went to this team and like what you asked me before if it was difficult to 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 go into this part of the career um, without being that driven about your own performance or performance in the way of race results um like this had a very young team a country where 
they don't have role models like like I used to have, right. right? So like, you know, I could look up to Michael Bohart and Eric Decker winning stages in the Tour de France. These guys, they have no role models of their own country. So how can they actually believe that they would be able to do that? Right. They don't have the resources and now they start to create those resources. And, and I think that is where I tried to figure out how to how to help that all get a little bit more elevated. Yeah, you became a leader of sorts on that team. I was yeah. I was definitely a, a leader um, for race results mm -hmm. because like it was a small team, it was a continental team at that uh, at that moment. Um, but also just uh, oh, no, helping them understand what was possible and like being a cultural leader too. Like become not just a leader in terms of of race in the races, yeah. but like a road captain maybe, or like a almost like a patron of the team. Sort yeah, of. yeah. No, I mean, we were actually pro continental team at that moment. Sorry for that, but like we, uh, like we did race. We did get invited for some some bigger classics, mm -hmm. um, some bigger races. Like we were going to to Tirreno. Yeah. Then also the next year we got an invite for the uh, for the Giro. Yep. Um, so we definitely went up, but. Oh, I think it was more like I was in the team and I could see, you know, we were, I could see what the guys were eating for breakfast. I, I see. could see what, like what they were doing. And like, you just had tons uh, of experience. I mean, I was, I, I, I have the experience from Rabobank development off till, yeah. you know, till being at the professionals where everything was super dialed in for you. Yeah. Um, because that was already where Jumbo started to go into or lotto and now jumbo i mean when i left they definitely cranked it up a uh, hundred notches but it's definitely compared to my experience and my knowledge those guys could learn a lot mm -hmm. and i think i learned a lot with how to communicate that with the younger riders because in the beginning i you know i said it one time friendly and the second time i was basically yelling at you and the third time i was punching it in no <laughs> I, it was like it never got physical but like it i got frustrated hmm. you know because you saw potential and they weren't yeah doing things to not the way how i was doing it when i was yeah. their age uh -huh. and and like when you get an opportunity like okay i maybe had to call a hundred times somebody else everybody needs to get luck to get in somewhere yeah you know like if you have bad luck you do not get the opportunities yep. and sometimes you never get another opportunity again so like in my way i i found that sometimes difficult to to understand that like hey you have the biggest opportunity like do this yeah like what is holding you back seize it mm -hmm. yeah and and i think that is at that time i was not as uh i didn't i needed to use different words mm -hmm. and i think that that is something right now i maybe still don't always nail it but at least i think it's 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 it's, it's 10 times better than it used to be yeah no i mean i've never felt so 
Yeah, let's, that's actually a really good transition point. So now, um, and we'll come back to Israel, but now you're, you're in this position where you're coaching a whole bunch of different athletes. Um, mostly riders such as myself and Cole and, well, Sevilla, obviously. So you have like World Cup mountain bikers. You have whatever you want to call us, gravel racers, <laughs> Grand Prix racers. Um, a whole handful of athletes. You're heading up this Orange Seal Academy program, which we'll discuss how that came about. Um, and I think a lot of people, I've talked to some of my friends who aren't coached by you, who aren't in the academy. And I think there's a lot of curiosity about like, how did this guy who's Dutch, who spent all these years in the world tour coming from like the most focused professional highest level of the sport how did this guy end up being the guy that's coaching these grand prix athletes like this this weird collection of kind of everyone besides the world tour in a way um and how can that possibly work like how can that be a good fit um and i think some people make assumptions that like what we are doing like the your coaching methods have to be super hardcore it must be super hardcore and it must be like really managed diet stuff and all these things. And it's really kind of the opposite. And never once have I felt um, like I'm uh, having some sort of weird pressure from you to have some sort of diet or do some kind of crazy training. If anything, it's almost the opposite. Like I find you holding me back more than I want to be held back. I would like to hear from you. And this is where the podcast can kind of become a weird heart to heart where all of a sudden people are just listening into like uh, us having our coaching moment. But I would love to hear, like, how much has your perspective actually changed? Because you were talking about, a minute ago, you were talking about when you were this leader on Israel. Mm -hmm. And you were saying, you know, you saw what these guys were eating for breakfast and you felt like they weren't totally dialed in. They're yeah. missing an opportunity. Yeah. Do you still, you can be totally honest. Like, mm -hmm. when you see, if we go have breakfast together yeah, and you see me order whatever, like, an extra serve. I, I can't think of an example. An extra serving of bacon, whatever. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. do you have a moment where you're like, ah, small missed opportunity here, or looking back on your whole career and just being a happy athlete, all that sort of thing? It's not about being a happy athlete. I think you know you're professional enough to know what you need during that day. So if you if you do a long endurance ride and you eat uh, only bacon. <laughs> I mean, for me, that is fine. If you, if you believe, I, I think that you have a, have a thought about what you need for that day. Yeah. Um, if you are looking for a, a high performance day where you do VO2 max and I see you order some extra bacon, then I would say, are you bringing that for afterwards or like what, what's going on there? You mm -hmm. know? Um, but like it, it, it is, I think you guys know what makes you feel good. I know that you would not order an extra bacon because it would not make you feel better in doing your high intensity interval session. Yeah. So I think automatically you do an awfully lot good, but it's all about fine tuning. So you have the maximum return of the investment of your time. Yeah. And I think that is something, of course, if, if I would be with you constantly, you observe more so you can adjust also more. Um, what would have a direct in, in, interference on, on the adaptation? 
but if we are looking overall it is if that extra ratio ratio of of bacon makes you being more consistent over the entire year because you know you just love bacon <laughs> who would i then be to say you cannot have that piece of bacon and now you suddenly your entire you know you're not happy anymore so i think that is you know the balance that's kind of what i was getting at because my perspective is that you what you're really good at that people won't have an idea from the outside is you're amazing with people and you understand people and you know how to communicate really well and you can understand what makes people happy and the big picture of what's going to make them want to work hard chase their goals um, and be in the best position for success and it's totally dependent on the rider as a coach how how often do you find yourself um, having to lean into the personality component and like figure out these weird differences between each athlete and how key that is versus just like different people's physiology and race goals and stuff i think you you, you hit it you know like for me it really of course sometimes you do the same you, you sometimes you do even a similar workout than sevilla was completely different yeah. training for something completely different but every day or the, every day in the in the plan in the structure or in the communication it's about each individual athlete there is no copy pasting you know you are one rider who you know has a certain lifestyle and everything needs to fit in yeah if it does not fit in it you know now it becomes really boring but like it would not be sustainable for you so the consistency falls away and I think that that is in the overall, that is how you win races. You don't win races by one perfect workout because there is no perfect workout. You don't win a race by even one training camp. It will training camp help you. But if you just, you know, you go for a two week training camp, you don't win unbound. Yeah. It is all about the consistency, you know, and, and if the consistency falls away because of that extra bit of bacon, then it doesn't matter. I mean, <laughs> yeah. to just go back no, to I the bacon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So at what point did you start developing an interest in all this stuff and helping other riders and, and being curious about coaching and performance and, and thinking that maybe when your career was over, you wanted to transition into something like this? I think it, I got aware of it when I was racing for Israel, but I think it was more, uh, so when I was spending more time with, with John Vargas from Orange Seal, I think he, he recognized something in me and he, he told me like, Hey, like you're not going to be racing gravel for the rest of your life. You know, mm -hmm. have a think about, have a thought about this, you know? So, so step by step, you know, he, he advised me in like, Hey, I think this is something you would be good at. Hmm. And, and that is something when I did one, one little, you know, study here. And I mean, I started to read some articles there and, you know, I, as you know, I'm also Dutch direct, you know, like if something I don't, you know, 
keep my mouth shut if I see something, what I, how, if I would not do it that way. And in that sense, you know, that is how, uh, how I got to coach Cole. He was the first rider who I started coaching. And, ever? Uh, ever, yeah. Wow. So that, uh, that went, I mean, on daily basis, right? Yeah, yeah, so yeah. like, of course, I would give everybody honest or without permission, <laughs> I would give them my, my <laughs> advice. But um, so yeah, that was cool. And, and like the way how he was training, he was just, I mean, you know, uh, Rachel, my wife, she would have recognized that he was chronically fatigued. You hmm. know, he was training every day, uh, no breaks, uh, always tired, also uh, always way too hard, you know, always gray training. So he was always tired. So I told Did him- you say always gray training? Gray, yeah. So Between yeah, easy no, and hard. Yeah, so always just like semi hard. So, you yeah. know, not too much variation, always tired because so he becomes numb. You know, he definitely had hit a, a ceiling plateau, ways yeah. back. Yeah. yeah a plateau yeah so he uh i told him i said like okay let's just take uh take a break you know let's hit the brakes and and build up and i was also very lucky because you know he has been training so hard for for quite a while that a by a break he would already get better oh interesting and and then you know we trained for one month and his first race he directly won was this mid-south no, this was uh, Swamigan. Okay, so yeah. this would have been 2021? 21, yeah. yeah. And then, um, yeah, so he, like, uh, then and also mentally he was getting very excited about it. And then also other riders got in interested uh, about, like, the way of training. And so we directly have hit it off uh, pretty, pretty good. Like, you know, the American dream is great. When you work hard, you get paid big. Um, what well, is partly right, but if you just, you know, there's not enough variation, you are be just becoming tired from everything what you're doing. You know, you, you just hit a plateau. You just don't get better anymore. Yeah. And I think that is something why you want to throw so much variation and you need the recovery. Yeah. We should quit just in our loose timeline here. We should quickly fill in a little gap where I think the, the connection with John and Orange Seal happened because he, Orange Seal, was a sponsor of Israel. And I think it was at a team camp that you guys yeah. started chatting. Yeah, so like, well, it, it was very funny, you know, like, uh, so I've always been super high performance driven, you know, like I did not need to do anything what was not gonna make me better or faster. And, and then, you know, we were riding tubular tires and then suddenly, you know, now John, he came up to the stage and he said, guys, I have sealant for in your tires. You guys will never have a puncture anymore. And I was like, okay. So, I mean, you know, I rather lose three races a year because I have a puncture than, you know, always being not there. So how, what is the cost of price? And he was like, this kid, you know, like for sure he was not too excited about me, but I was directly without hearing him completely out. I was questioning it. Yeah. And, you know, and, you know, he came up with some, with, with some really valuable answers. And this was you know, when he was on stage. This was, yeah, he was so standing were, in front of the group of 60 people. So you have a, just to kind of paint the picture, cause I, the story yeah. is kind of notorious yeah. and epic now. Yeah. <laughs> You have a team sponsor 
literally the owner of a company that is sponsoring the team. And then you, a writer, granted you're you're a senior writer, kind of a leadership writer, but you're challenging a sponsor about whether their product is worth using at a team camp in front of the rest of the team. Yeah, I know, man. (laughs) Like when I'm thinking about it, I was like, oh man, I was a real shithead, but... (laughs) But I mean, you know, like at the same time, he had a great opportunity to, to, uh, you know, to come with the return and, and like be the best brand ambassador for his own brand. Yep. So he, at that moment, he said it, I was absolutely not convinced, Hmm. you know, and you know, I just asked him that question, I believe. And then that was done. But then later, you know, he, he came by and introduced himself and we, you know, we had a good like conversation you know so we we knew each other and then um we were on training camp in israel at that moment and you know the roads there they they contain a lot of you know sharp uh, things sharp things yeah let's put it that way and then um so we had a lot of issues and i did not have sealant in my tire so you know i you know, I had multiple punctures a day and I was, I just went to look for John. I said, John, like, can you give me some of that sealant of yours? Because like, uh, I'm getting quite tired of this. And he was like, of course. So like, he changed me at that moment, you know, like it definitely, it, 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 like I started to believe it because, you know, you can see, you can see the benefit, you know, mm-hmm. like you, I've saw multiple times that camp and also the result of 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 the sealant so in that sense for me i was i was sold but you know that was that camp you know at that camp he already changed me you know i i never used sealant before and now i wanted to use it so then i think i did not see john until tour of utah maybe or something he came by he brought some texas barbecue you know so the entire team was happy that was uh that was fun and yeah, for the rest, we did not see each other much. You know, sometimes he was, he came one time, I think, to the classics. But, you know, John. John is not uh, somebody who, uh, you know, be presented everywhere at the first row, right? He will always be uh, on the back. And, like, when somebody needs help, he helps. You know, actually, during one of the classics, I believe he helped because the car had a, had a puncture. The car dur- did. During the race. And I believe, like, he was in the car. And they just took the valve core out, put sealant in, and they continued the race. That's it's a so true crazy. story. So that's so crazy. Yeah, that was that was fun um, <laughs> for them. After, so like, I did not want to retire another time. You know, I, I truly love cycling, um, but the team merged with with another team and Katusha, know, I think, right? That yeah. was the year they merged with Katusha. Yeah. yeah. And that is when, when my career finished there because they had too many guys on the contract and, you know, that's, that was fine. Uh, but then I always said, okay, you know, I was very stressed about it for a while. And then I was like, okay, it's it. I'm done. Fine. I'm going to do something else. And then I, you know, spoke with my wife. I said, look, I always said after my career, I want to try to, you know, race Cape Epic. Hmm. And, you know, so I actually got... A wild card hmm. only thing was like it got validated when i paid ten thousand dollars oh. so i was like okay that was not really what i was expecting on a wild card but um <laughs> so then i was like yeah you know i cannot tell my wife uh, i'm going uh on uh on holidays uh 
with a, with a body for tank and bring ten k out. <laughs> um, so then um, I thought I'd just reach out to some possible sponsors and like one of those guys was John and I called or I sent John actually a message something like I wanted to get in contact with him um, because like I wanted maybe to do something with Orange Seal and he reached out like okay let's jump on a call we jumped on a call and I said look I want to race mountain bike next year hmm. and he directly was pretty like Texas direct to me is like, well, you're a road cyclist. Should you be riding a mountain bike? <laughs> and I was like, well, I think I'm strong enough so I can compensate it a little bit, uh, my lack of skills. And he was like, let me think about it. I call you back in a week. And he actually called me back one week later and he said, so why don't you come race gravel in the US? So, and that was like, okay, I, you know, sold. So I did not have a gravel bike. John gave me a gravel bike. He invited me to the US and this is how we met yeah. at the Mid-South that year. Yeah. So that is how the circle uh, got around. And like, yeah, I could directly from after that uh, uh, thing when he was on stage, we got we got off on, uh, on a pretty good way, I would say. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'd like to jump in here and tell a quick story about kind of the way I was first exposed to what it's like to have some Dennis wisdom, be on the receiving end of some Dennis wisdom. Because we started working together. You started coaching me at the beginning of last year. So we're in year two. Yeah. But it was at that Mid-South race in early 2020, kind of right as the pandemic was starting to hit, where I got to know you better and also start to understand what you could offer as a mentor. So this was the super epic mud year and it was really cold also. Uh, and I think at the beginning it was pretty windy too. And we were, I mean, this is like 20, 30 minutes in and, uh, I'd never had a, a teammate quote unquote, uh, at a race like this. And it wasn't a situation where like we actually talked, I remember we talked about it before the race and you, you basically said, look, if if you want me to basically be a domestique for you, so to speak, I'm fully prepared to do that. Like you were very uh, upfront about, I'm just happy to be here. I want to have a good experience. I have no expectation that I'm racing for myself. And I was very, uh, I had no experience in terms of, very little experience in terms of what it would be like to have a, a teammate in a race like that. And so I was like, no, I think, you know, we help each other how we can, but if you're having a better day, I'm going to be thrilled to see you win. And I didn't know a lot about you, but I had a lot of respect for where you'd come from. And I knew some about your career and all that sort of thing. I was like, this guy is, you know, won the battle for position of the Arenberg forest in Roubaix. Like he's probably pretty good. <laughs> There's a great chance he just smokes us all today. Um, I'm not going to sit here and be like, yeah, Dennis, you work for me. Yeah. <laughs> But after we had that conversation, we went out and we were racing together. You just sort of immediately slipped into this role that you kind of were describing earlier when you uh, first showed up at the Israel team and some other scenarios where you slipped into this role where you were directly wanting to help. Like you were trying to help your, I'm going to use air quotes, teammate succeed. And the first way that manifested is um, we had some pretty strong crosswind, I think. And I think we were a little bit back in the group, like maybe 
30 wheels back or something, not ideal, especially on a mud day. And you're like, hey, if you're looking to move up, and you posed it as a question, on what side of the road are you going to try to move up? I was like, well, the wind is coming from the cross. You know, if you're moving up, you want to be trying to save energy. So stay on the left side of the road if the wind is coming from the right and you just save energy, do it slowly. And you're like, left side of the road is where everyone is because everyone's trying to hide from the wind. It's going to be more efficient and you're going to move up way faster if you just grit your teeth, chop through the wind for 15 seconds and you're at the front. There's no one over on that side of the road because everyone's trying to hide from the wind. I was like, holy shit, <laughs> like something really simple that I'd never thought of. Cause I've never, I've never raced a classic obviously. Uh, and there are some elements in gravel racing that, you know, a lot of road know-how can, can be beneficial. So that was kind of the first moment. This is 20 minutes into our first race together. And then the, the way bigger one was when, uh, we both missed the first split. Um, and we came, we were super lucky, but we came together in a group of, I don't know, four or five or something. And the lead group already had over a minute. And I can't remember exactly how the conversation was at first, but it was something, I think you basically like asked if I wanted to try to get across. Like the first question was, do you believe that we can get back to the front? Cause if you don't have the belief, then what's the point? Um, and I was super, super focused that day. And I was like, yeah, absolutely. We're always going to try. And I started just pulling through so hard, like full panic mode. And he said, if you want to make it across and you want to have a chance to win this race or do well, we have to do it over the course of an hour. And in the moment I was like, what is he talking about? Like, why would we chase for an hour when we can just go full gas and get across in maybe 20 minutes, 15 minutes from, for a minute long gap. And you're like, yeah, you'll be fully over your threshold, burn through all of your energy, have nothing left when you make it back to the front. It's like, okay. And we just went to work together. And I think, like I said, we were a group of four or five pretty soon. It was just the two of us just doing turns and you were gently, but always like coaching me through managing the effort. And we made it back to the front and I ended up winning that day in like one of the most unlikely scenarios. Yeah. Guarantee you I would not have won that day if it weren't for your coaching really. So I, I will never forget that day, um, obviously because it was epic, but also just how natural it seemed for you to be in a position where you were elevating someone else, helping them succeed. And, uh, it was just, it was one of the coolest race experiences of my life and I'll always remember it. And now you're, I mean, you're doing that on a daily basis, really. It, whether it's everything from like, go to this grocery store because they have this thing that you're going to need. And I've lived here for 15 years, so I know, yeah. and I'm going to take the, the two minutes to like message you it because it's going to help you save half an hour in your day. To being, you know, a road captain in a in a gravel race and everything in between. Oh, thank you, man. It's, uh, <laughs> Sorry, that was a long yeah. story, but no, but it's <laughs> it's nice. Yeah, I, I remember it. I mean, you know, we had we did some some course wrecking as well. Yeah, on under way different circumstances in the mid south. So we also knew that the corner was going right, and so like you know we had a little bit of advantage in, in knowledge. And that is why, you know, at that moment, it was better to to make that move. We would have saved a lot more energy. 
And uh, yeah, I think the pacing back is like, uh, I think it was, was dialed. And I think you, you were on an absolute day. I think you would have won either way, but now we were back and you still felt, felt like on the upper hand and uh, uh, you won. So that was super nice. And the, the next year when Cole won, were you in the group then also? Yeah. And I think you, I don't, did you tell him when to go to make his move? I mean, like, so it goes a little bit deeper and like, uh, we were playing it already way smarter from like basically the feed station. Yeah. So like I told Cole to take his leg warmers off Yeah. and then, uh, just keep the pace on like, because it was super windy. Explain for people why to take the leg warmers off. Well, this is, this is where it gets kind of tricky yeah. too, because we, there's a lot of stuff yeah. that we're doing with the, like one of the things that I'm very grateful for with the Academy is that you, you do your homework, like you're passionate about it. So you do so much research yeah. and there's some stuff like, I don't, I don't know how much into the details we want to go per se, but I remember when you told me the story about the leg warmers and I was like, intentionally underdressing, really? Like that's going to make such a difference, but yeah it did yeah so i mean you know if you're looking at the weather forecast where wind and also we started the mid-south with minus three degrees celsius super cold yeah super below below freezing yeah below like 28 freezing. fahrenheit yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. and then like the maximum temperature for that day was 17 degrees celsius yeah. so that is uh pretty warm crazy 50, temperature swing 57 or something like yeah, that. yeah so pretty warm yeah so like in that sense you know your body is going to respond to that no matter what. So if you start with a lot of clothes, you're gonna blow up at some point. And then we knew that basically after the second aid station, um, we were gonna have only cross crosswinds basically, tail cross. So in that sense, I told Cole, you know, let's let's get this out and then nobody else can take their leg warmers off because we just keep, keep the pressure on with the crosswinds. So everybody will be stressed. And then in the end they will be overheating and like that has a big impact on your performance. So like Cole and myself, we were hurting, but everybody was hurting. And then Cole and I were like, I mean, you had a very unfortunate crash. And yeah, that was the year I broke my collarbone. In yeah. And, yeah. And I think that had a big impact on, on the race. You know, we, we stopped for, we did not make, make a, a stop to zero kilometers per hour, but slow like with, with the group, you know, there were some, some smart people in there. Like, uh, Ted King was there, Stedna was there. We said, guys, you know, let's give them a chance to come back. Let's go super easy for a bit. Yeah. And then, um, well, one individual made the decision to throw in an attack. What well, was not too nice uh can everyone guess who that was probably? i think everybody knows but <laughs> yeah how much is one and one <laughs> but uh yeah no but th then um i think quite some guys did were able to come back like brennan, brennan yeah. was able to come back even mm -hmm. though he stopped and helped you back up you know yeah. he's an absolute uh saint of a person yeah super nice guy and strong as an ox like oh so my God. good <laughs> Um, so he came back and then, you know, the, the race started back on and like, I think I threw an attack, then Pete closed it and then Cole just went from behind and nobody had anything left. And like, 
the the thing was is like everybody was basically dropping quite some performance because they were getting hot and maybe we were having a little bit more of a benefit from that yeah and like call us you know like i really believe that pete was like how can this kid still go away because like we were we were going pretty fast at that moment and um yeah so that was uh that was pretty nice you know i was super super stoked that uh cole would normally at, especially at that moment had uh he was very hungry so he was try <laughs> it was more difficult to keep him calm yeah yeah so fair. Normally, normally he really likes to you know use some bullets uh in the first hundred miles yeah, yeah. he's yeah he's always on the front foot yeah. that's for sure yeah. yeah it's a cool story i think the last thing the last thing i'd like to touch on that's pretty fun is just what it's been like to become a father yeah we went for an awesome mountain bike ride with lars the other day three-year-old lars yeah. um and i sent you a note afterward just i don't remember what i said exactly but it was something like it's just so awesome to see how you approach being a dad and um, yeah it was a very nice compliment yeah no i mean it's really heartwarming yeah um just seems like you're always having such a good time with him what has it been like to to be a father yeah it, it was uh you know in the beginning you know what i said i was still when i went to to gravel i was still very performance driven and i think then you're also pretty ecocentric so everything is about you still um i think that that did change when my wife got pregnant i tried to really change in a good way not to being too selfish um but saying that i look back at it right now and i was like oh my god <laughs> i was really selfish still <laughs> um so yeah we for example after Lars was two weeks old. We rented a house. My family came over. You know, this is still end of the pandemic, uh, August 2020. And I was still training because at that moment I was hoping that Unbound was still a go. Mm -hmm. So if that would be a go, I would go and I would try to, to, try to win it. Mm -hmm. You know, that was uh, at that moment for sure my dream. Mm -hmm. um, and we had a race here, the Traka. The Traka 200 was uh, was actually happening then, so I I was like, okay, I also have another opportunity to to do this race well. So um, yeah, that was uh, that was fun. Did you win Traka? Yeah, but it was the COVID year, so it was. Um, I mean, some French guys came over, but it was not uh, not the pace and McKelvins came over. That's cool. Yeah. That uh, yeah, I forgot that you won Traka. Yeah. That's very cool. Um, yeah, I would love for yeah. you to describe the bike setup that you have with Lars. I think it's really, yeah. really cool. in some of Because the, the trail, for those that don't know, the trails here in Girona are what I would call pretty Euro. Like they love their steep. In Europe, people love steep trails, steep yeah. shoots, sort of like World cup -y style. And here in Girona, the sheer number of trails is just crazy. There's trails everywhere. And you ride some pretty serious stuff with Lars. So yeah. for any uh, aspiring or or maybe uh, new dads or moms out there who want to take their little ones for some mountain bike rides, you've developed a pretty cool system with Lars. Yeah, I, it's it's like over here. I think it's also in the US. It's available. It's called a shotgun. So it sounds scary, but it's not. Um, <laughs> so like you just, it's easy to uh, to put on your bike as long as it has a, has a round steer tube and a round 
seat post. And then you can even put an adjustable handlebar for, for the little guy uh, on top of your handlebar. Mm-hmm. What well, is just like with a quick release. So, um, yeah, it's, it's safe. At least, you know, uh, the weight balance is a little bit off. And also your vision is maybe not always as good, but... <laughs> You need to get into it a little bit, but it's, uh, you know, to, to, and we, we normally, we don't really ride too much trails. Like if we go, we go to quad, what is like single tracks without risks, right? Yeah. So there's just some trees, what you have to avoid, but, um, that's pretty easy unless he gets super excited and starts pulling the handlebars. But, uh, <laughs> no, it's so like, he's just sitting in between, uh, you know, my saddle and the handlebars and like uh, he loves to tuck in arrow so then i have a full vision <laughs> and normally like you know i've done last year with Braden or with uh, with george bennett who is a good friend of mine we just go for a nice coffee ride like an hour and a half and lars uh, loves it and and i love it so it's uh, it's a nice uh, you know we go buy ice creams together in this way so we don't always go to trails or or make it extreme uh that is something like uh, he can make it as extreme as he wants uh, when he's on his own bike. Yeah. 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 And yet he's still, I remember on our ride, he was like, faster, Papa, yeah, faster. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he hates going uphill. It goes too slow. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Nice, man. Yeah. Anything else? I like how <laughs> I sent you a rough list of what I wanted to touch on yeah. before. And you're like one hour, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know myself. You know, I, I, I'm not the greatest with word choice, but uh, Van uh, Winden uh, of the wind, of the uh, long wind, of the long wind. <laughs> yeah. Did you still want a tip for? Uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Huh? So before we uh, before we started recording, we thought it would be fun for you to give kind of one little tidbit for people that are maybe doing their own training back home. Just something that's. Uh, maybe high, high impact, high, high return, um, for improving on the bike. Um, do you have one little thing you'd like to pass along? Yeah. I think, um, if you would ask me the question, what is the most common mistake Mm. of, uh, of any, uh, any amateur or anybody also professionals, Mm -hmm. um, maybe right now, not too many, but, uh, it's fueling. You know, you go for uh, for a two-hour ride. Yeah, perfect. You don't need to bring anything. But I would say, you know, supplement yourself with a little bit of more carbohydrates. Like not having, per se, a bigger breakfast. No, because you will run through the energy just more, just quicker. So in that sense, I would say, you know, if you go for a two-hour ride, eat something in the first hour and eat something in the second hour. It doesn't need to be anything like gels or don't make it complicated no just just bring a banana or bring a banana and just like uh you know at your local market bought uh fig bar or whatever you know like just make sure that you have enough energy then and i understand that a lot of people they try to exercise to lose weight but you know if you give your body also the energy then you don't come back and you don't want to eat the entire fridge in one go yeah so i think that is that is something uh what I think is the biggest game changer for sure. For sure. Yeah. It's, I mean, we all hear about how much the, the carbohydrate revolution has changed performance at the highest level, but, um, that is good to note that it's across the board. Everyone can benefit. Yeah. And I mean, the way I feel about it now, even for just endurance rides is if I come in the house and I directly want to make a huge lunch, I know that I've kind of undershot carbs a bit on the bike. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's a good point that even for just a two hour fun ride, you're going to get more out of it. Um, be able to 
ride stronger and like you said not come home and want to eat the whole fridge <laughs> yeah. and um yeah i think if you want to look training wise i think throw in some variation you know like you can go sometimes when you go uphill just go a little bit lower in gear lower in cadence um throw in a sprint here or there you know and it, it you can make it naturally like you know sprint with your bodies uh for a, a town sign or mm -hmm. or something just make it uh make it fun yeah oh yeah that's good stuff yeah variation so yeah. true that's one thing we've worked in more since uh working together is and that was one of the main reasons i wanted to try something new coaching wise was just after doing the same thing more or less for almost 15 years uh you can get stuck in certain routines yeah. um and that's also how you reach a plateau so i think that goes for everybody i certainly think so yeah. nice man thanks for everything thank you man <laughs> Hello again, everyone. Thank you so much for listening today. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Dennis. I think it very likely that we'll have him on the show again before our time is up here in Girona. Uh, we have some specific ideas of uh, some, some follow-up questions, maybe some specifically themed like mini episodes. He's got so much to offer on the coaching front. Obviously, he's an awesome storyteller. So even though that was a long episode, it feels like there was so much more material there we could explore. Uh, if you have specific curiosities that you'd love to have covered in a follow-up episode, as always, feel free to shoot us an email at theadventurestash at paceandmckelvin.com or shoot us a DM on Instagram. Uh, we don't necessarily have the time to reply to everything, but Lily and I make sure to at least read everything and take it all to heart. On that note, thank you to everybody that's been playing along with our Friday quizzes and taking a swing at winning some free gear each and every week. Uh, and as a reminder, we are uploading six to 10 minute kind of highlights from the podcast on YouTube now in, in longer clips. We have the shorter reels clips on Instagram, and then we have some longer ones over on YouTube now, um, as well as a couple of full length episodes. So if you want to watch some of these episodes, you can go to my YouTube, which is just Payson McKelvin. Thank you all so much for listening this week. And thank you to Lily McKelvin for editing and producing the show each and every week. Uh, tune back in in the next few days because we'll have another episode hot off the press from Girona. Um, I'm really excited to settle into a longer string of in-person interviews now. Uh, we started the podcast doing exclusively in-person interviews, and we did that for, I think, over a year. And then the pandemic hit, and we were forced to transition to almost exclusively virtual interviews. And post-pandemic, we've done a mix, although there have been more virtual interviews than I would prefer. The in-person ones just always have that little bit more depth. Um, and so being here in Girona and just having such a massive potential pool of interesting guests to pull from, we're just going to commit to doing a bunch of in-person interviews for a while and get back to kind of the roots of what we used to do here on the podcast. So that's something to look forward to. Thank you all so much for listening and we'll catch you next week.